Now, one of the earliest descriptions of Christianity, you can actually find it in the book of Acts. One of the earliest ways to describe it was it was known as the way. Uh, so not that people were called Christians, they were called followers of the way, right there early on in the first century. And the reason I mention that is because I think it points to the fact that early on, from the, veriest, um, from the very earliest days, Christianity was never just a system of thought. It wasn't just something you, you believed in your head or believed in your heart, but didn't translate into your lives. The thing that was noticeable for people was that people were living a new way as a result of following Jesus Christ. Rodney Stark, the um, historian in his book, The Rise of Christianity, talks about this. Um, the subtitle of the book is How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in Just a Few Centuries. And basically, as he answers that thesis, how was it that Christianity grew to overtake the Roman Empire and then continue to advance and shape Western civilization in a way that was completely unforeseen, he argues that it wasn't only about the way that Christianity gave people a radical new understanding of their relationship with God, one on the basis of grace and forgiveness, not on the basis of works and what you do, but also it was the way that that belief worked out in a radical way of living, um, a complete reorientation of human community, values that the ancient world knew nothing about suddenly came into play and suddenly were seen and embodied in the lives of believers. Uh, values like um, a profound care for the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized just had not happened in the ancient world up until Christianity. Uh, values like um, the elevation of the dignity of women um, in a society that was hugely patriarchal. Values like um, multiple ethnicities and different demographies in community suddenly now brought together when the ancient world was very, very segregated. He said, this plus the new beliefs about Christianity, this new way of living, was what was actually hated early on in the first three centuries, but given time led to the radical and remarkable rise and growth of Christianity. Now look, I mention that just because sadly I think it's too common today that churches can be split into one of two camps, and many observers have um, commented on this. One is that you have certain churches where they take seriously doctrinal belief. You know, what do you believe about Christianity? Are you orthodox? You know, do you know the right beliefs and do you really believe it? Maybe an alignment with a historic statement of faith. But too often there's little change in life. I mean, it just looks to the world like this is a community that says one thing but then looks no different to the rest of the world. Political ambitions like the world, material ambitions like the world, no vows of poverty, no profound change. I mean, how is it different to the world? But they believe something different. On the other hand, there are some Christian communities and churches where they do show a real social concern for the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable, but sadly often there's no doctrinal orthodoxy, as though believing in Jesus was incidental to the um, social ethic that's lived out, and particularly sometimes, sadly, on areas where it comes into conflict with the culture when you're asked to make a stand on issues like beginning and end of life ethics or sexual ethics, no difference at all. And it should not be that way, right? It should be both and. And that's what we're going to see today. As we see in this passage, as we look at this Sermon on the Plain, God's new way of living, the radical values that underpin it, the mercy that infuses it, and the importance that underlines it. So let's look at God's new way, the radical values that underpin it. And we're going to look at, first of all, verses 12 to 26. If you've shut it, your Bibles, then we are on um, page 1033. Um, and then we're going over to the page to 1034. So chapter 6, verse 12 starts, One of those days, 
nice ordinary start, but then something remarkable is going to happen. Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now, if you were a Jew in the first century reading these verses, you would immediately pick up on the deliberate resonance and echo of the Old Testament. When God calls the 12 tribes of Israel to around the mountain at Mount Sinai, just after he's brought them out of Egypt, out of the Exodus, and then he gives them the law. And in the same way, this is a new take, if you like, on that, because we still have a mountain verse 12. We still have 12 something called, but this is 12 disciples of Jesus, because this is new, whereby it's no longer along ethnic lines, but it's about allegiance to Jesus. This is all about his teaching of the kingdom of heaven, and he is the king of heaven, and therefore who's in and who's out of this new community, and how you live in this new community is not on the basis of ethnicity or observance of a particular religion. It's about a relationship and knowing him and trusting Jesus. But even though it's new, it's not new in the sense of a departure from the old. You know, new in English is a clumsy word. It can be new as in this is a new thing, a break from the old. Or there can be new in the sense of it's a continuity, but it's a fulfillment of the old. And that is the sense in which this is new. Because notice that anything that Jesus is going to say, the ethics that he's going to command his disciples to to live by and to follow, they come not as a result of you know, sorry, they, they um, don't cause God's favor on his grace, but they come as a result of God's favor and his grace. So he calls his disciples to them first, and then he says, this is how you are to live. It's acceptance and it's relationship with God first, it's blessing first, and then it's how you live. And it was the same way in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 to 3, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's grace. There's redemption. There's God bringing his people to himself. And then he says, now have no other gods before me. There's law. Grace followed by law. And this is where Christianity, it's worth just pausing for a moment and reminding you if you're a Christian here, and particularly saying this if you're not a Christian here, this is where Christianity, I put it to you, is different to every other world religion. Because it is never, if you do this law, then you will get blessings, then you will get God's acceptance and favor. No, no, no. It's God has accepted you. God's given you freely his blessings and his favor. So now go and live this. Grace leads to change. It doesn't result from change, right? So it's not try harder. It's see what he's done for you, and that empowers you to change. And that's why, notice when he does speak of the, um, of the Beatitudes, he says not blessed are you if you do these things, but blessed are you who are poor. The blessing is there anyway. It's there given to you freely. It's not earned if you take a vow of poverty. No, you are blessed even though you're poor. It's just given freely by God. God is rich and generous beyond measure. Secondly, though, there is an expansion in this newness. There is a a kind of a new criteria, an expansion of that. And you see that particularly in the 12 disciples that Jesus calls together because when you get into the details of it, these are 12 men you would just not expect to find in a room together. Let me point out some of the awkwardness that would have been in the room if you'd first met them. So we get in verse 15, Matthew, um, and Matthew, we know from Luke's gospel, is a tax collector. Tax collectors were sellouts. They were Jews who were getting rich by selling out their countrymen to the Romans, right? But then you also have mentioned just a few words later, Simon, who was called the zealot. 
Simon is a religious revolutionary, arguably a kind of terrorist of the early, of the early first century because of his zeal. He would hate with a passion, Matthew, just on a human level. Matthew is everything that he's not. He's calling for purity in the kingdom. Matthew is selling out the kingdom. So how is it that they are in the same group of 12? Because Jesus is the one who unites them. He brings people who are radically different together. This is the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. And this is why our value here at Inspire, our vision is to be a united and diverse community. Because one of the ways you see the work of God is by seeing people in a room that you just say, there's no way they would be in a room together normally. I mean, a zealot and a sellout, a tax collector, how, how are they, one of the 12, how do they ever do anything? How do they not just spend all their time arguing? The answer, because Jesus had brought them together, forgiven them both, united them together. And so let's just pause for a moment. If this church family here inspire, if we are no different to what you would expect to find, the normal preference communities you find on social media, you know, it's just a church for the people who like certain things, and, you know, they hone themselves down to being just in that kind of preference community. If, if that's all we are, if we're no different to the way the world does things, then we're not living out the gospel. You should expect to see here people of different ethnicities and backgrounds, ages and stages, people who just naturally don't get on, right? Which is why we have to work at community in the power of the Spirit. Don't just come to Inspire if you're expecting to find everybody here naturally the people you like. The whole point is that's exactly what we're not trying to be. We're trying to be different. So the world looks in and says, why are they together? When they see you talking downstairs afterwards over the, uh, over the dinner, you know, they're saying, I would never expect to see her and her talking. They're just so different. But you're taking time to get to know each other, to love each other, to care for each other because you're united in Christ. But as this new community comes together, let's look at the radical values that are intended to be contrary to the values we see in the world. Page 1034, verse 20. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. And he contrasts that in verse 24 with this, woe to you who are rich. In other words, Jesus' values are poverty in contrast to riches, hunger in contrast to being well-fed, weeping in contrast to the self-assured laughter that looks down at his nose at someone else, being hated even, in contrast to being spoken well of. Now, a few things to say about this. First, do you see how radical this is? We know the mantras of the world, right? I mean, they crowd our screens and um, hoardings of uh, branding and consultancy and marketing that say, you want to be happy? How do you be happy? You do you. You do you. Do you seek self-fulfillment, seek self-actualization, seek growth, seek satisfaction, get the partner that's going to make you happy, find the career that's going to help you to grow and develop yourself. You do you, because if you don't you do you, no one else is going to do it for you, right? That's how you can be happy. And Jesus walks into that world, into our world, and he says, no, you want to be happy? Give it all away, be poor. You want to be satisfied and feel full? Learn what it is to go hungry in the pursuit of the good of others. And before you look at this and you think, oh, it's all a metaphor, isn't it, Peter? It's all poetry. Yeah, there's a poetic element to it. But the point is that he's showing a radical reorientation of the way that we are to view ourselves and to view the world. Because 
The world says, and our natural human inclination is, says, if I want to be happy, I've got to look after number one, right? It's all about self. It's all about me. And Jesus says, when you really get what I've come to do, then it reorientates you and it becomes about God and about others. You give your life away in the pursuit of others. And you find the curious paradox that has marked out the Christian community for 2,000 years, that the path of blessing lies in the pursuit of actually not pursuing your own blessing and happiness, but in pursuing the blessing and happiness of others. That the path of true riches lies in being loose with your finances and your material possessions and saying, I'll give it away for the good of others. That the path of satisfaction leads to emptying yourself in the service of other people, because that's what God has done in Jesus Christ. That the path of joy is through mourning your own self-centeredness and your own sin and coming to God and receiving forgiveness. That the path of honor is not through seeking popularity and saying, you, you better honor me after all I've done for you, but is actually saying, no, 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 I'm going to look out for you and I'm going to seek to honor you and lift you up and forget myself, even when that leads you to being hated because it's so radical and so challenging to the world that people don't speak well of you. The second thing, not only the radical nature of Jesus' way, is the holistic nature of Jesus' way. There is a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, often called the Sermon on the Mount, and commentators debate, and I'd be happy to chat to you afterwards about whether this is the same body of teaching from a slightly different perspective, or whether Jesus, like so many preachers, had material that he was happy to go back to a couple of times to really, you know, kind of um, get the point across. Whatever the whys and wherefores of that, what is interesting about Luke's take on it is how in Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke just says, blessed are the poor and blessed are those who go hungry. And so it's easy just to spiritualize it, right? Because it's easier, you know? I don't really need to be poor. I just need to be poor in spirit, but I can hold on to my possessions, right? I'm really sorry, wrong. <laughs> it would be nice, wouldn't it? But here's the point. We're holistic beings, And actually, Matthew, if you were able to talk to him, would say to you as well, poverty of spirit is the disposition of our hearts, but if that doesn't lead to a changed bank balance, if that doesn't lead to a different attitude towards your possessions, you don't really know what poverty of spirit is about. Do you really think it's possible to be poor in spirit and yet so attached to your wealth and your material possessions that you won't give them away? No, the answer is no. Do you really think it's possible to hunger and thirst for righteousness whilst all the time pursuing self-satisfaction and you being filled up at the extent of other people? No, the answer is no. We're holistic beings. And this is the challenge and the bite of these verses. It's easy, isn't it, just to kind of tweak the world's values and add them onto Christianity. So, yeah, I'll still get my career, I'll still get my um, money, and then, you know what, I'll give a bit of my time to service of Jesus. 10% of my income, 10% of my time, and think of it that way. No. Jesus says you must reorientate the way you see everything. Your money is not your money. It's a gift from God to be used in the pursuit of God and the pursuit of the good of other people, which doesn't mean you give everything away, but it means you say, God, this is your money. It's not even my money, right? So if you're looking at your bank balance, you're saying, how much money have I got? Friends, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, how much money has God given me to steward and how will I use it? If you're thinking about your talents and your resources and your energy and you're saying, how can I find self-actualization and then give a bit of time as a side hustle to the church? You're asking the wrong question. You need to say, how do I give all that I have, my gifts, 
my resources, my energy, not in the pursuit of the church, by the way, in the pursuit of God and other people, which will involve some aspects of the church, but it will also involve other aspects of life, going into the office with a different mindset. That's the radical call of Jesus. It's a total reorientation. Let me put it this way. Do you really think anything less was able to turn the Roman Empire upside down? Do you think just 10% change to the basic norms of Roman society was able to completely turn the world on its head? No. It was radical then, and it's not become less radical now. So friends, I really think as a church, we need to think about this. Are you living this way or just believing truths about Jesus but not really living a changed life? Look, let me look in the mirror on this. It's easy for me to think, look, I gave up a career in the city. I was a management consultant. I would have been earning a lot more money than the Church of England stipend. So poverty, not quite, but tick, right? No. <laughs> I need to completely rethink my approach to finances. And I need to check my heart on that regularly. It's not enough just to pick up a Church of England stipend. How do I view my wealth? How do I use it to serve God and others? I'm no different to you. And for me, I think the one that particularly bites is about how people speak of me. Jesus says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Well, I like being spoken well of. So the hard thing for me is not preaching up here. I find that relatively painless. Um, I don't know whether you find it painful or not. You can let me know afterwards. But, um, but the hard thing for me is when I see my friends whose opinions I really care about. You know, my teammates I used to play rugby with. You know, I, I don't want to have those awkward conversations with them when they ask me what I really think about the latest ethical issue of the day. I want them to like me. They already think I'm a loser for going into the church, so I just want to kind of reassure them that I'm okay, that I haven't changed that much. No. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, not for being awkward just for the sake of it, but because of the Son of Man. So I need to be prepared to put my reputation down for the sake of Christ. I'd love a conversation for us as the church family afterwards about where this is challenging for us. Why not go through the Beatitudes? Which one bites for you? Which one you really struggle with? Let's be honest and open. Let's pray for one another. Let's try and live this out. Because here's the punchline. Could it be that one of the reasons the world today is so indifferent to the church, because when it looks at the church, all it sees is a mirror to itself. And I don't know about you, but I get bored of looking in the mirror each morning. But what if the church wasn't just a mirror to the world, basically just like the world? What if the church was a window into a new world? So when people look at the church, they say, I don't know what I think of that. I don't even know that I like it, but I tell you what, I can't deny there's something going on there. It's radical, it's new, it's different. The way they view their possessions, their careers, their friendships, their social relationships, it's just different. Because don't you think people want to change at the moment? Don't you think they're fed up with the status quo? We should be a change to the status quo. That's the way it's been for 2,000 years. The radical new way of Jesus. Secondly, let's look at the mercy that infuses it, verses 27 and following. It's interesting that Jesus makes this whole section of verses 27 to 38 all about how we respond to our enemies. So verse 27, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Good, do good to those who hate you. And then verse 35, he says, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. This is all about how we are to treat our enemies. Why is that? Well, I think the hint is because he said, if you live for him, 
People will hate you, exclude you, and insult you. Not every person, not all the time, maybe not in the UK because of religious freedoms as bad as it is in many other parts of the world, but you can't expect that people are going to speak well of you. And so how do you respond to that, he says? How do you respond to that being treated as an enemy and when you suddenly start actually having people who don't value and who do treat you a bit as an enemy, how do you do that? Do you respond as the world says and cancel them, push back on them, try to get a bit of petty revenge in? No, he says. Love them. Do good to them. Bless them. Be countercultural in the way you do that as well. A few years ago, I um, had a meeting down in um, London Bridge. Well, I often have meetings down in London Bridge, but it was a few years ago. I remember this particular one. I was coming out of the exit at rush hour um, as people were trying to get into the entrance. And it wasn't that I was going in the wrong exit or entrance. It wasn't designated as such. It just so happened that clearly I didn't get the memo that this is where most people come into the tube. And I was following Google Maps, and so I had to use this exit because otherwise I wasn't sure how I was going to get to the place I needed to be. So it was kind of 99.99% of people were going the other way. And there was, there was I trying to press myself up against the wall, trying to go against the flow. Now, whatever that says about me, and again, you can reflect on that with me later, um, it was just fascinating for me after the fact that no matter how polite I tried to be, no matter how much I tried to press myself up against the wall and say, excuse me, I'm sorry, so sorry, just coming through, and all the rest of it, I got shoulder-checked, I got called an idiot, I got told, go back, and all this stuff. I mean, it was just, and that, that was just with going against the physical flow. My point is this. How do you think people are going to treat you when you go against the flow on something that really matters? You know, how we do community. What do we think about marriage? How do we treat the unborn? How do we treat the elderly? How do we treat our finances? What about your political allegiances? When we start pushing back, not campaigning for a particular political party, but pushing back on the status quo and saying, no, 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 not so with you. Jesus has a different way, a different standard. Do you think that people are going to go, well, oh, that's fantastic, that's wonderful, I mean, that's just amazing? No. On the whole, you'll get enemies. And so when you get enemies, how do you respond? Do you say, well, if they're going to cut against me, I'm going to cancel them, and you take to social media, and you do what everyone does, you exaggerate the claims, and you try to get as many followers as possible to cancel them and say, ha, I've got them back? Jesus says, no. Love your enemies. When they curse you, you bless them. When they slap you down, you turn the other cheek. When your heart is angry, you turn that anger into prayers of forgiveness and blessing on them. When you have the opportunity to do them good, you don't withhold it just so they know that you've hurt them. No, 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 you do good to them. You actually do good to them. So they're thinking, why on earth did he or she do that? That's how you live. And why do you do that? Well, isn't that what he's done for you? <laughs> I mean, did Jesus reject you? Did Jesus slap you down? No, he, he's a savior full of forgiveness and mercy and blessing. That's how he treats his enemies. And so if you follow him, then you live that out as well. But it will be costly, of course. Now, as you hear that, I'm sure you're thinking, well, hang on, you know, does this mean that it's just a carte blanche for abuse or... You know, is there no place for justice? You know, we could leverage this and teach this the wrong way. Let me just say a couple of things on that. No, this is not legitimizing evil. Notice, please, in verses 24 and following, Jesus pronounces woe, that is a word of judgment, on evil. 
In other words, he will see evil and call evil as it is. And there will be a day of judgment, a day of woe for all who treat people poorly and don't receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is not about cosmic justice. This is not even about social justice, saying that it's wrong to take an injustice to the appropriate authorities at all. No, 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 it's really important, and we've got lots of policies here at the church. If you've ever experienced anything like that and you want to report it, then please find that out. It's all there for you. This is not about legitimizing abuse or bullying or injustice, but you know that there's a world of difference between trusting the authorities or trusting God with the pursuit of justice and you trying to take justice into your own hands, right? Because that's what we all love to do. I'm not going to report it, but I am going to punish them myself. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows what an absolute snider they are. And I'm going to go around bad-mouthing them. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, don't do that. Not so with you. Bless them instead. Act with restraint instead. Bring it to light if it's injustice, of course. But don't take petty judgment and vengeance into your own hands. Oh, how as a society we need to hear this. I don't know about you, I'm just getting wearied by the cancel culture. And the worst about it is it's not just online anymore, right? It's starting to shape our social interactions. No time for decent disagreement with someone over something that matters. If you disagree with me, I will cancel you. And actually, sadly, people can sometimes treat the church like that. You know, if you don't like a restaurant service, what do you do? Leave and leave a bad review on Trustpilot or Google Ads or whatever else it is, right? If you don't like the church, what do you do? Leave. Leave a bad review as you go. You're never going to thrive and flourish in community if that's your knee-jerk reaction. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, campaign for justice, of course, but don't take it into your own hands and petty vengeance. Let's work differently to the cancel culture. And as a side point, I think that's why Jesus uses the word sinners in these verses in a way he never does. Verse 32 even sinners love those who love them, verse 33. Even sinners do that, verse 34. Even sinners lend sinners. Jesus never calls people sinners, so why is he doing it now? Well, he's picking up on the idiom, the rhetoric of the day, the Pharisees who call people sinners. In other words, don't other people. Don't label people. He's saying don't do that. Love people, bless people, do good to people. Finally, then, the importance that underlines it. We don't have time for it, really, because I need to draw to a close, but I'd like to notice in verses 39 and following how Jesus tells four parables that are all intended to just double underline this as being really important. So he's got the parable of the blind leading the blind in verses 39 and 40, where he says, in other words, how can you help to show a world a changed ethic, a changed culture, if you are no different, if you are just as blind as the world? The parable of the speck and the plank, which my six-year-old reenacted with my four-year-old the other day when he said, Toby, you've got something in your eye, and then started like poking him in the eye to try and get it out. And Toby's like, ow, ow, stop, stop. Look, if you've ever had someone who's a hypocrite tell you, you know, you're the problem, doesn't it feel like that? Stop it. Stop your stubby fingers poking in my eye, please. It's so painful. Stop. In other words, take the plank out your own eye. If we're going to change, change starts in the house of God. We look in the mirror first before we start pointing at the world, right? And that's the same in our human interactions. Then the parable of the good and bad tree to say there's no good professing belief in Christ if your life is not changed in Christ. And then arguably the most important one of all, the parable of the wise and foolish builders that Jane mentioned in our prayers. 
to say that if you merely hear Jesus' words, like if you hear this sermon today and you go away and you decide, yeah, that all sounds interesting, but I'm not actually going to change, then here's the warning. When, not if, when the storms of life come and you start getting shaken, when the architecture of your life is shaken, you won't be able to stand. Because belief alone is not enough. A changed life is what leads to solidity, a rock to stand on. In other words, Jesus is daring you, saying, this sounds challenging, but it's actually more dangerous not to live this out, because you won't stand when the storms come, and they will come. You can't escape them. In other words, he's underlying is saying, live this way. Well, you may be saying, I mean, if it's as radical as you say, Pete, and if it's as challenging as we've just seen, and you're saying live this way, how on earth can I live this way? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a good question. You can only live this way, as Jesus says in verse 22, because of the Son of Man. In other words, this is enabled not in your own strength. This is something Jesus and Jesus alone can do in your life. He is not only the example for you to follow in this regard, but he's also the one who empowers you to change this way. As you believe what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you will be changed. You see, there is an element of poetic license in these verses. So when Jesus says, you know, when someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one, you know, I think most of us would have walked away right beforehand, and that's nothing wrong with that. But it wasn't hyperbole for Jesus, right? The night before he died, the legion of soldiers gathered around him, and what do they do? Well, they did worse than slap him on the cheek. They beat him and flogged him with an inch of his life. Now, he's the son of man. He's the king of heaven. He had enough power to get himself out of that situation, but he didn't. He didn't just turn the other cheek. He laid his back bare, and he took the strokes. Why? He was beaten for your sake and for my sake so that we might be forgiven. You know, it says here that if someone asks for your garment, then don't just give them your cloak, but give them everything, right? And you think, well, no one else is going to walk around the streets of London half naked, right? It's too cold. It's winter. It wasn't hyperbole for Jesus. When he went to the cross and he had only his inner garment, his underwear left, they stripped that off him as well. He strung up naked on the cross, everyone gawping at him, laughing at him, the shame of it, the indignity of it. Why? He was stripped naked so that you might be clothed in his gift of righteousness, right standing before God, though you don't deserve it. And similarly for Jesus, it wasn't poetic license when he says, bless those who curse you. When he was crucified on the cross, as the crowds walked past and they laughed at him and they mocked him, they said, he can't even save himself. How can he save other people? He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here's the point. As you understand that Jesus has done that for you, that he was stripped for you, that he was beaten for you, that he was crucified for you, it changes your heart. You say, why am I living for myself? He didn't live for himself. He gave everything for me. And you start to live for him. And you start to live for other people. It reorientates your hearts and it changes your lives. As I close, I've been searching all week for um, the source of an illustration that I remember. I've read it in a book and I just can't remember in my library which book I've read it in, so I'll keep searching. I'll let you know if I find it. But it was one from a time in Stalin's Russia when the um, secret service were going around and they were arresting Christians and they were throwing them onto trains and sending them out to the gulags where they were killed and they never survived. 
And this SS officer, who'd been doing this for a, a long time, and he was hardened by it all, went into one Christian house. And as he burst into this house, normally there was this screaming and this panic and all the rest of it, but this time something different. There was a matriarch in the house, the elderly grandmother, and she just gathered all the family around her, her children, um, their, their partners, their children, her grandchildren, and she said, let's pray. And to the SS officer's absolute astonishment, she prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The SS officer went away from that, and he just couldn't sleep. He just couldn't deal with it. You know, here he was bringing hatred and carting them off, and they died. He didn't save them, they died. And he just thought, she prayed for blessing on me at the very moment when I was tearing her life apart and the life of all those that she loves. What is this? And after a period of time, he actually found the underground church and gave his life to Christ. Because when you grasp what Jesus has done for you, that's just a, that's an amazing example. But when you grasp what Jesus has done for you, that you are forgiven, that you are blessed, that he prays blessing on you, even when you're an enemy, Romans chapter 5, it doesn't leave you the same again. My friends, if your bank balances aren't impacted, if your diaries aren't changed, if your priorities aren't different as a result of knowing that, then it shows you haven't really grasped what he's done for you. Let us not be a church that is doctrinally orthodox only, but yes, please that. But let us also be a church that lives out a radical new life in Jesus. Because only that will be the new way that will look compelling to the world around us. So let's talk about it. Let's pray for one another. Let's gently challenge one another in this. Let's live this way. Let's be a window to the new humanity that God has in order. And let the world see it. And though they might not speak well of it, they won't be able to deny its power. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't do this in ourselves. This is too high a bar, too high a standard. But we do believe that if we really know what Jesus has done for us, this changes and reorientates our hearts. So, Holy Spirit, we need you to change us individually and corporately as a church family. Work in us. Help us not to settle for anything less than a radical reorientation of our lives and our values. And as we do it, might we do it um, for your glory, so that your name might be honored and praised. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.